chapter 20, 39 through 44. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Grass withers, flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Keep your Bibles out. We're going to be looking at a few other places in, in our Bibles this morning. So we're back in Luke, though, this morning and ending Jesus' conversation with the religious leaders. Um, there's just this one remark coming. Uh, we'll finish up chapter 20 uh, next week. But then twi- all of chapter 21 is is full of teaching to the disciples, but this really marks kind of the end of Jesus's conflict with the with the religious leaders of this day. Um, now that now that he's going to respond to them, he's they they've constantly kind of asked him questions, but now they've they're going to, they've given up on asking him this question. This is what we see in verse thirty nine, right? They start verse forty. They no longer dared to ask him any more questions. They're done. Asking Jesus and it kind of just trick questions. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble, trying to get him either to say a theological uh, error or to say something against the political authorities that get him put in jail or silenced and get rid of his popularity and get rid of him. But they've given up on that. They're, they're no longer going to ask Jesus any more questions. But now that they've given up, now that they're finally silent, Jesus is going to ask them a final question. And this question is different than he just previously had asked them a question, right? About the <clears throat> baptism of John. They had the question about uh, whose, whose baptism is the baptism of John from the Lord or is it from man? And they were afraid to answer the question. So then he wasn't going to respond uh, with by what authority he would do the things that he was doing. And he kind of asked them a question to get them to be quiet. Well, now they're already quiet. His, the point of this question isn't to get them to be quiet. He's proving some other point. So he goes on and he's, he's no longer trying to get them to be quiet. They are quiet. And now he's going to teach them something, raise their awareness to some great reality with this question. And so much of the reality of who Jesus is rides on this passage. It's truly astonishing. So we, just up on the board is our big idea for this morning. I'm going to lay it right out. It's very simple, but it's very profound that what the truth that comes from this passage and it is that Jesus is God. Therefore, he is worthy of our worship. The littlest in the room among us that's able to understand the English language can get what's going on here in our main idea. Jesus is God. Therefore, he is worthy of our worship. Verse 41 begins with this inquiry Jesus makes. He says to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? How can they say that? How can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now, that the people did this is not news. It was a very common way to speak about this coming Messiah as the son of David. The Messiah is known to be one who's going to come 
from the lineage of David. He's going to be David's son. So look at me at a couple of places. We're going to make this plain to you this morning. Uh, look at 2 Samuel, the Old Testament passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's page 306 in your pew Bible, 305. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This title of this chapter is the Lord's Covenant with David. And you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12. This is God speaking to David. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, bottom of page 305 in your pew Bible. When your days, speaking of David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, jump down to there. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now there's a sense in which this prophecy is somewhat about Solomon. Who is going to build the temple David's going to collect all the cedar. He's going to collect all the wood, all the resources for the building of the temple. But David is not going to build it himself, which is tied up in this passage as well. But his son Solomon is going to build the temple. But what happens? Solomon dies. He doesn't remain on the throne forever. In fact, Solomon has quite a colossal ending of his, of his kingship. But there is this coming offspring of David who's going to rule forever. Go to the book of Isaiah. Here's a Christmas passage. But Isaiah chapter 9, verse 680 in your pew Bible. Just about the middle. Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. You'll, you'll recognize this once we start reading it. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, that's just two passages, but they're, again, emphasizing this reality. There is, and they're expecting, there's this expectation of this coming king who will be the son of David. He's going to come from the lineage of David. We could go to Jeremiah 23, other passages in the Old Testament, the Psalter, talking about this coming king from the line of David. There is this descendant. From David, who's going to establish God's kingdom on earth. He's going to establish peace and justice and righteousness. And this is what the, the proper orthodox expectation was of this coming descendant of David. Luke picks this up as well. You can go back to your Gospel of Luke. And if you, he, he starts emphasizing this right off the bat. I mean, Luke emphasizes it, but actually it's caught up here in the angels, uh, the birth announcement or not, the, the, of, of the coming of Jesus to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. The angel shows up, speaks to Mary. The angel said to her, this is page 1017 of your pew Bible, Luke chapter 1, verse 30. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So there's this, there's this rich reality of this coming Messiah, this coming king, who's going to be a descendant of the line of David. We go on further in Zechariah's prophecy, just down in verse 69, uh, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant, David. Okay? All this expectation. We we could go to lots more places, but for the sake of time, we'll just kind of stop there. Of this expectation of this coming descendant from the line of David. Blind, the blind man at Jericho, when he cries out, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There's this understanding of this figure who's going to be coming, who is a son of David. So with all of this evidence, all of this evidence that it was proper to call the coming king, the Messiah, this son of David, why does Jesus ask this question? How can they say that the Christ is David's son? I mean, he's, it's, it's theologically correct for, for them to call this coming king David's son. And Jesus is like, why do they call him his son? He's, he's there's trying to bring some tension to us here. Why does he ask this question? How can they say that the Christ is David's son? I mean, the, 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 the coming king is going to be David's son. Why this question must mean something else, okay? Where there's something going on here that we, I want us to work at seeing. He goes on then and quotes Psalm 110. He says, For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Do you see the problem Luke's highlighting? Maybe not. That's why I want to help us to see the problem that Jesus is highlighting. How does this bring in a problem? In Jesus' mind, he's trying to open their eyes to see something they're not seeing. They see that the Messiah is going to be the son of David. But they don't see how what, what David is writing in the Psalms conflicts with this earthly understanding of Jesus, the Messiah. Whoever the Messiah is going to be at that point, coming as the son of David. So flip with me as well now to Psalm 110, because I want you to see this. You can't see it in, in, um, in the New Testament. You can't see it where he quotes there in Luke, but you can really see it in Psalm 110. So if you've got Psalm 110, it's page 602. I know you're flipping around. This would be one of the last places we look. Psalm 110 is on page 602. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Do you see the first Lord there? I mean, maybe you, maybe you know this, and if you know this, then, then just bear with me. But if you don't know this yet, I want you to see this. Do you see the first word, occurrence of the word Lord there? Yes? You see it in Psalm 110, page 602? The Lord says to my Lord. You see the second occurrence of the word Lord. Do you see how they're different? You see any difference there? The first Lord is all uppercase letters, right? L-O-R-D, all uppercase. 
The second Lord is capital L, lowercase o-r-d. There are differences there. And what the Hebrew, the, the English language is not as uh, colorful as the Hebrew. What's happening there is anytime you see L-O-R-D in all capitals, that is the, the official name for God, Yahweh, being used there. That's the, the, the official title for God, Yahweh, all capitals, L-O-R-D. This second use of the word Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai which is a more general term for any sort of a Lord. So David is writing Adonai or Yahweh says the Yahweh says to my Adonai. And there's two different usages of that word. There's a distinction going on there. We don't get it in the English. The Lord says to my Lord. Well, how is he talking to himself? The Lord, my Lord. Well, there's a distinction here. Yahweh says to my Adonai. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's something, there's something to the mystery of the Trinity that's caught up in here. But there's a conflict going on because David recognizes this coming descendant. This is very clearly a messianic psalm. If you read the whole thing, you're forever a priest in the order of Melchizedek, establishing judgment, uh, all these things going on, establishing justice. It's a messianic psalm. But this Messiah that is coming from the line of David, David says he's his Lord. How is this one who is coming, that is his son, also his Lord? How is he not just his descendant, but he is his Lord? That's the tension that Jesus is driving at with them. How can the offspring of David be worshipped by David? How can this coming descendant be one that David would bow before? The Lord says to my Lord, this coming descendant, everyone knows he's coming from the line of David. But David says, this one who's coming from my lineage is someone that I bow before. He is someone that I will worship. The answer, what Jesus is trying to highlight, the answer is in the reality that the son of David is more than just the son of David. He is God in the flesh. He is, after being coexistent with God in eternity past, Put on flesh, this son of David is also the son of God. He is, yes, fully man and being descended from the line and lineage of David, but he is also fully God. The hypostatic union. If you want to be a Bible uh, theology nerd, we talk about the hypostatic union of fully God and fully man in one being. Jesus is highlighting the conflict here. Of yes, you're looking for the son of David. Yes, yes. But listen, the son of David, according to David, isn't just the son of David. He's something far greater. He is the son of God. He's pressing on them this reality that the rejection of him is not just the rejection of some worldly Lord, but the son of David, who is the Lord of David, It is the rejection of God himself because the son of David is also the son of God. He's really pressing the issue that that seeing Jesus as just a good teacher, seeing him as an interesting rabbi, seeing him as someone that, you know, you want to give credit to or or give a nod to or give sort of some mental assent to. Very interesting, Jesus. Thank you very much for your opinion. I appreciate that. That's a problem because... The son of David is not just the son of David. 
David himself calls him his Lord, calls him his Lord. This son of David is also the son of God. He is divine in and of himself. There's only one right response to the son of David, the son of God, and it is worship. It is worship. It's not general agreement. It's not, I like what I'm saying. It is worship. That is what Jesus is driving them to at this point. Now that they've gone silent, there comes a time in everyone's life where it's time to stop objecting, time to stop complaining, time to stop criticizing, time to stop delaying, and instead to close your mouth and worship. That's what's happening here. They're out of objections. They're out of problems to bring. They have brought hypothetical after hypothetical after hypothetical. Well, what if a man marries a woman and then she dies and then he dies and she marries a brother, childless, and then he dies. And seven times, they hypotheticals, hypotheticals, always trying to find a problem with Jesus. And the time comes when the hypothetical questions have to just stop. You can go on questioning God and questioning Jesus for forever. Thinking of all kinds of objections, creating all kinds of scenarios, creating in your own mind all kinds of reasons to hold back. But the day comes when you finally have to stop creating hypothetical questions and worship and just worship. This is in a very real way, a basic reality of Christianity. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. This is... Strong words, but this is from the the good doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, not from me. Let me quote him. How do you know whether a man is a Christian? The answer is that his mouth is shut. I like this forthrightness of the gospel. People need to have their mouths shut, stopped. They are forever talking about God and criticizing God and pontificating about what God should or should not do and asking, why does God allow this and that? You do not begin to be a Christian until your mouth is shut, is stopped, and you are speechless and have nothing to say. Worship. That there's a time comes when the mouths are closed, the objections cease, the, the, the going down rabbit trails to avoid the answer, stop and worship is results. Now, I'm no killer of, of honest inquiry. And I, I, hopefully if you know me and have sat around with me enough, you know that I, I'm glad to hear all kinds of questions. I mean, well, let's, let's sit down. Let's talk about, I love, I love rabbit trails. If you come to a Bible study with me or any conversation, you'll be surprised. We might end up, who knows where, following questions. I'm all into following questions and, and following honest inquiry. So I hope you know that. But there is also this reality. There are cases where the inquiry is not an honest question, but it's just a dodge so that you don't have to face up to the reality of the answer that you're getting. You know what we call that today? Politics. <laughs> My dad's not here, so I could say that. <laughs> you know, somebody asks you a question. How, how frustrated do you get when you're hearing a debate or a question and they ask the person the question and how do they respond? By talking a whole bunch and just creating more questions instead of just giving a yes or no answer. Instead of just answering the question, they talk around and talk around and talk around. And by obfuscation, they just kind of create a smoke screen so you never really get an answer. Don't play politics with God. 
Don't play politics with God. Just that when there comes a time when it's, it isn't just a matter of finding, okay, now I've got my answer on whatever issue now, but, but what about this? But what about this? What about this, God? I don't like what you're doing here. Well, why does this happen? And on and on and on and on we go with our questions. The time comes when politics should stop with God. When he has spoken, when the son of David, who is the son of God, has manifested himself, we've heard the gospel, we know who he is, and our mouths at some point cease to yammer. Our mouths become closed, and what results is worship. Do you ever get to that place? Where your mouth is silent, and you just worship. This is the lesson Job learns. You read the book of Job. It's a long book, but you can, if you read the first few chapters and the last few chapters, you kind of get what's going on. Job on and on and on and his friends questioning God, questioning God, questioning God, questioning why this and why that. God, why does he allow this? And why, why has this happened? They go on and on, but then finally God shows up and Job covers his mouth. And, and, and Job chapter 40, verse 4, he says, I put my hand I, I've, been at, I've, I've spoken things I had no idea of what I was saying. Let me cover my mouth. I'm done talking. And God speaks. <laughs> and at the end, Job worships and says, Truly I have heard of you, but now I have seen you. Because he took the time to close his mouth and to listen. This is what Jesus is calling all who hear his voice to do. You have to see his willingness to hear your concerns. It's there. I mean, Jesus certainly entertains many questions, many inquiries over and over again. So don't get the idea that Jesus doesn't want to hear from you. That's not the point. He will hear your desires. He will hear your sorrows. He'll even put up with your violent outbursts against him. But from here, he presses upon his hearers. You must finally realize that the one you're dealing with is no mere man. Here is the son of David, the son of God, one with God from eternity past. And at that realization, complaint, questioning stops and outright worship ought to begin. How does this then impact us? And everyone worships. Everyone worships. There is something hardwired about who we are in our createdness that, that is just created to worship. That, they are, that everywhere we look, we are worshiping. There's two ways I want us to think about this as we close. Two ways I want us to think about this reality of worship. We ought to be, at some points, we ought to be at all points, worshiping God, worshiping Jesus. Jesus is God. He is worthy of our worship. Well, how does, how does that truth hit us? Well, there's a couple of ways that you worship. The first way is that we appreciate beauty. We get caught up in a moment. We celebrate. We laugh and then we invite others into those things we enjoy. That's a kind of worship. When you see something funny, I mean, is anyone else on, you know, you're watching a TV show and something funny happens and you pause it and you whine and you go get your spouse or somebody say, you got to watch this, it's hilarious. You got, I want you to join, I want you to join in me in what I'm enjoying. There's an element of that that is just hardwired to worship. That when you go to a sporting event or something and you're there, you take other people with you and you, you're caught up in the moment of the event. There's, an, a, there's a hardwiredness in us for, for worship. But my question is, do we ever worship Christ in this way? That we're caught up in, you got to see, you, 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 you call your spouse in and say, 
worship with me this God. I'm just, I'm thinking about what Christ has done. That while, while our fighter verse says that even while I was dead in sin, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That is worthy of you, your worship. That you would get caught up in this, that your mouth becomes closed and you enjoy who God is and what he has done for you. That's what technically we're supposed to be doing here on a Sunday morning when we gather together corporately. Not, not fighting off sleep while Darren talks. <laughs> we're supposed to be caught up in worship over, this is what God has done. And when we sing our hymns together, whether it's the musical style of your choice or not, there's truths there being spoken of that, that is to be calling us into worship. Speaking of God and enjoying Him. Do you ever just enjoy Him? Celebrate Him? Can I encourage you to praise God as He is worthy? So it's what it looks like this. Taking a few moments, taking something like our fighter verse, Romans 5, 8 or whatever, read it and just prayerfully thank of God. Worship. Thank Him for who He is. Do you ever take time to get quiet before him? And remember that though everything is beyond your control, nothing is beyond his control. All the details of your life going wild. To stop and meditate on who God is, think of him and worship. Worship him. Remembering that the gospel that saves you, remembering it and singing a song to him. Do you ever take time to worship? You get caught up in all sorts of worship. And this is my... Rebuke it myself. Do I ever get caught and why not? Am I not seeing it clearly? Am I not understanding it rightly? Am I discounting the son of David as not really being the son of God? What's going on there? So we're all worshipers. We all get caught up in these things. Remember the gospel saved you. Sing a song. He is deserving of your heartfelt worship. That's the first way is just through appreciation of such things. The second way we worship is that we are creatures and we plan ahead. We think ahead. We have underlying motivations. And you can diagnose much of what you worship by observing what you bow to. What you give permission to. What do you bow to? What you worship will be what you make decisions by. If, if there's some event, some weekend plan, if it's, if it's sports or, or, or camping or other leisure activities, all sorts of things that become available to you and you adjust all your plans for them, good family activities even at times, or what other events you've got going on, golf or some activity like that, these leisure activities, they become available to you and you cancel all other plans in subservience to this one thing. That is bowing to whatever that reality is. That gets the say in your life. For some it's just excessive TV watching. I, I, I bow to my TV. It is, the, it is the thing that at night I go home to. And it, it controls my day. I want my generation to make the connection. Between this thing we hold in our hand. And bowing. This, the, our phone. That, that, I have nothing there. but My phone in my hand. And the, the physical connection. There is a physical relationship. Between this phone and bowing. And that every time I pull this thing out and I'm at the park and my kids are playing or I'm at the dinner table, I'm going out with friends or something, and, and I'm bowing to my phone, it is an indicator of a false worship. 
It is an indicator of worshiping this social media, this immediacy of, of the moment, the demand of the immediate, the, the caving into the demand of novelty, what's new, what's next. Truly insignificance is bowing to our phones. Bowing is worship. What gets the say in your life? And whatever it is that gets the say in your life, it, that is the thing you are worshiping. So then the question is, do we ever bow before Christ? Does he get the say in who I am and what I do and what decisions that I make and where I go and what I associate with and all of these things? Am I bowing before Christ? Worship of him that he is deserving of. Worship of him includes letting him have the say in what I do and who I am and what I do with my life. He is deserving of our unrestrained and undivided worship. He is worthy of this because he is not just the son of David. He is. He's not just the son of David. He's not just the coming king from a natural descendant. He is also David's Lord. He is God. He has made us. He sustains us. He saved us. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We have gladly become his children. So we work to turn from all empty worship. And we do that right now as we get ready to come to communion. Think about these things that have this say in your life. What do you bow before? At its essence, it's idolatry. We talked about in our catechism question. Whatever you worshiping created things instead of the creator for our hope and happiness and significance and security. All of those things that you look to apart from God. What do you worship? And turning from those things that we might approach this morning in true worship. And then as we sing the song, working at, God, I don't, I don't want to just think about what's next. I, I want to take these three minutes of singing this song to honestly rejoice in your love for me. Let's turn from all empty worship today. And as we come to communion, worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, help us now this morning. We desire, I desire to worship you rightly in spirit and in truth. Because God, you deserve it. You deserve it. I don't want to gather as some sort of people who have a high respect for you. Or think highly of you. Or want to have you involved in our life at some point. Father, we have gathered to worship you. You are worthy of every ounce of worship that we can give you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.